0: Welcome to Love Requited Etc., a podcast of love and life, stories about unconventional, untethered, and sometimes unreturned love. This podcast is for mature audiences only as it can sometimes be sexually explicit. I am Rev. Liliana Barzola, a spiritual and intuitive healer, creator of Lotus Lantern Healing Arts. Episode number 5, Angels in the Architecture. Meet Emily, a high-powered architect who has been madly in love with her hunky glassblower boyfriend for over four years. The first time she came to me for an intuitive session, she wanted to discuss her relationship. Her boyfriend was battling a mysterious illness that was making them grow apart. She returns two years later to let me know that he has passed away from cancer. This story is a tearjerker. It's also real life. This is a rare and sacred opportunity to experience this couple's story. The gems here are plenty. Pay extra attention to how they both talk about their meaning for each other in this life and beyond. Emily and Casey were enlightened enough to discuss the process and reflect while in their situation.
1: doing a podcast my six-year-old named it <laughs> amazing <laughs> I told her I'm doing a podcast on unrequited love she said what is unrequited love and so we were talking about what it means to be unrequited and and I said but it's it's not really just about unrequited love the idea is like all love is requited it's love mm. she said it should be called love requited and I yeah. said great idea so <laughs> it <laughs> we're is a great like, idea. I loved the session that you and I had together. I like your unique story. I think of this as the impact that your sweetie can then keep having on the planet. Because that was one thing yeah. you shared with me is how, like, larger than life he is. Yeah.
2: When you asked me to do it, I thought, oh, yeah, I would be so honored. But so would Casey. He would be so honored, too. <laughs> so one of the things that he was really concerned about in the week before he died was that I remember all of the lessons that he taught me. And we didn't even really need to talk about what that was. And since he didn't have very much energy at that point anyway, it was hard for him to speak very much at all. I just spent a lot of time telling him about all the things that he taught, oh. saying, well, yes, I, I know you did. You did teach me so much. Here are all the beautiful things that I have that I'll have forever that, you, that, that. you gave me.
1: Beautiful. What a, what a blessing for him that you were able to receive him and see him and reflect that back to him. I lost my sister and my mom. And those are my love stories of loss. I remember my sister called me when she had a pretty serious diagnosis and she wanted to talk all about what it would be like when she died and what Mm -hmm. kind of a similar thing. You know, I I want you to remember these things. I want you to know these things. And I started to cut her off and like, no, 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 you're not going to die. Like, I don't want to talk about that. And I caught myself. Not hearing her, and when I finally did say, "Absolutely, tell me everything," I recognized that I was doing her service by mm-hmm. really hearing her while she still had energy and breath to speak of these things. I I felt that in my body, and I can feel it in my body when you're telling me, "Oh yeah, babe, you need me. Remember these things? I sure as fuck am gonna remember them." And here they are back.
2: Yeah, these are all things that have made me a better, and I'll, I'll never forget them.
1: Do you want to start talking about some of those things, or do you want to start by saying about the last time you and I were together, kind of what happened as your life unfolded after you left my office?
2: Sure, I would actually. I'll I'll talk about that. We talked about that cord, that umbilical cord you visualize coming from my solar plexus and being attached to Casey, and it was kind of causing me some pain and some confusion in my, you know, my worldly self, my worldly body, (laughs) to be so connected to somebody who's who's not here, you know, he's off on some other trip. We discussed together how the house that I live in that I shared with him is actually really good. Cleaned out a lot of his things. It's been really difficult to do that, but I have done a lot of that. And what I haven't really done and approached is the is the garage where he worked, his shop, his um, his glassblowing studio. Like every time I go in there, it's like whoa, he's he's still here. I mean, he's like, and I would go in to try to change something or move something, and I I just stand there for some undetermined amount of time and. Not really be able to move and then just kind of retreat. It was time to move that energy out. And yeah. that would be really good for us, us being me and Casey. <laughs> And then I needed help to do it. You asked me who could help me do that. The answer is that all these glassblowers that I know because of him who are also, if they have the same thing happen to them when they come into the shop, they're grieving him too. And they come in and they feel him there and they see all of his stains, his glass blowing things. The goggles that he wore that were so trash and like had masking tape all over them and paint had like this weird cord attached to them that would go around his head. He had this big nose that was really this like heavy forehead and so no glasses ever fit him right. So there are these like modified weird glasses that wouldn't really fit anybody else. <laughs> um, you know, they're hanging there and
1: Yeah, it's like um, a curated Part of your house that's curated to him, like a museum. Yeah, yeah.
2: There's still a lot of his work in there, and then a lot of raw material and just unfinished projects. Sometimes the unfinished projects are the hardest ones to see, really, because he didn't get to see them through. He's these visions that are are cut short by the shortness of his life. You know, his his tough love approach to to friendship sometimes that all of his Glasgow friends can relate to. Uh-huh. Um, and, and then, yeah, clear out that stuff. There's a lot of really valuable things. Yeah, well, when I saw you two and a half years ago, I was at a point where I wasn't ready to leave Casey, but... I needed something to change because I was so beyond my capacity for worrying and anxiety about his health. Like we didn't know what was wrong with him. It felt like he wasn't doing enough to help himself. And he was also extremely resistant to my health. It caused a lot of a lot of trouble between us. It really hurt, and I was like, "What do I do? I just need to know what to do." You know, we had doctors telling us like, "Oh, you know, maybe it's stress. You know, try to reduce stress." It's like he's a freaking glass blower. Like he's not stressed out. You know, he's he's yeah. like doing art. He's smoking weed all day, and like he's a really chill dude. This is not stress. It was really, really frustrating to talk to these doctors that were like, "Oh, okay, you know, you look great." Like yes, he looks great, gorgeous. That's something that. Is just true about Casey. He looks great. But that doesn't mean there's not something seriously wrong. So we were getting all these weird messages from professionals. And when I went to your office, you sort of told me, you know, he is hes really, really sick. And in some ways, I needed to hear somebody say that. And you also told me that all I could really do right now is nothing. You know, I was like, do, do I break up with him? What do I do? And you're like, no, I don't see. I don't see you guys being apart for very long. Like maybe you do need a little bit of time away, but like three weeks a month is really all I see before you come back and are together again. So we actually, we tried. <laughs> it lasted like a day. Um, he, <laughs> drove, he drove down to Eugene, down there and working for a month, and he came back and he was like, look, either we're together or we're not. Like I can't leave you.
0: Oh my
1: God. I love that. I love that. I have to <laughs> I love that part. So so you came to my office. You had been going to doctors for how long trying to get a diagnosis for him?
2: He started feeling sick in March. It took a long time for us to get health insurance so that he could even go to a doctor. And then I made the first appointment and drove him there because he was so resistant to it. And that was probably in June. And then I saw you probably in like October, November.
1: What were his symptoms? What was it that you saw, the change that you saw in your partner that was worrisome?
2: He was having excruciating abdominal pain. It would be like crippling, like it would take him to his knees and it would last
1: for a long time. Can you describe what he looks like? Yeah, he's like... He seems hot.
2: He's he's hot. (laughs) He's really got... He's like broad shoulders. Like he holds weight super, super well. So he was about 205, about six feet tall. like. Held it in his muscles and just like was big and meaty and like so strong and could just like push things and loved to shovel and just like use his his mass, you know. He was, I, I call him like meaty my my meaty man. He was just so big, <laughs> um, so wonderful. In the course of about six months between March, he lost thirty pounds
0: oh. and
2: he was not trying to lose weight. There was some where he was like, at one point he was like, oh, you know, I lost 10 pounds. I feel like I look better. But I was so, so like not into that because it was clearly, it was because he was sick. I was like, this is not good weight loss.
0: Mm -hmm. And
2: to watch somebody lose 30 pounds in six months, is fucking terrifying, by the way. It is so scary. Wow. Oh, I was so, I had no idea what to do. No idea what to do. Especially
1: because he wasn't taking it. Seriously. Right. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah. He was so you sort of felt of a lot of
1: pressure like, hey, babe, I'm glad you're excited. But no, this is bad. And by the way, yeah. it's excruciating watching you go through this abdominal pain.
2: Yeah. I mean, he was spending his days and nights like on the floor in pain. How? And that's so wrong. Like, no, we went on for like eight months, nine months before his diagnosis. But it was like on and off. He was so resistant to my health. Like I can get this figured out. This is something I can take care of with diet. I'm smart, I'm healthy, like I can I can figure this out. This is a diet problem. So he was trying all these different things and meanwhile he's losing more and more weight. So I'm super freaked out about him cutting things
1: out of his diet. Right, because you're like, Um, you're already losing weight, dude. Yeah. Yeah. So you're terrified he's losing the weight. Um, he's in pain eighty percent of the time. That's a lot of time.
2: Oh, it's 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 all the time. And and so you just you don't have to step back very far to see that something is extremely wrong. He's saying, Look, I need you I need you to trust me, I need you to step back, I need you to not be aggressive about this and I mean I was I was losing my mind I was I was like this is not good you are dying I'm saying these words because I need him to hear me and he's saying you're being so mean to me right now you're being so aggressive you're not trusting me I need you to trust me step back
1: like I can't I can't do that he couldn't work he was no longer able to make any money He's on the floor. You're saying, you've got to take this seriously. This is really serious. I feel like you're dying. And he felt like you were being too aggressive with him when you were really yeah. just trying to get him to be taking it seriously.
2: Right. It was so, so hard. Yeah. Because I cared so much about him, and he's telling me that what I'm doing is is mean. I see him dying, and I don't know what's wrong, and nobody can tell us what's wrong. And we're at odds. Not only is it killing His body, whatever it is, it's also killing our relationship, which is precious to me and precious to him, and it's just so, just fucking tragic. Our session, you know, two and a half years ago, after he'd been in pain for six months or so, six or eight months at that point, what you told me was really helpful to say. I needed some kind of decision-making mechanism about what to do. And you were like, at the end, you were like, I'm really sorry you kind of have to do nothing right now <laughs>
0: but oh, it was the perfect
2: it was it was super frustrating but it was still something it yeah. was still something i didn't it it released me from feeling like i had to do something and that was really helpful for the two of us because he actually had a couple of decent months you know, I remember we had a really fun Thanksgiving, a really fun Christmas, New Year's. We became a lot closer. We both decided that we were going to stay together, and that was a big, you know, relief for both of us. We were getting along again.
1: <laughs> if I can just reframe, I think what you're asking is a really reasonable question. It's like, okay, I've been married to this person. I love him. He's my soulmate. He's changing. Something's wrong and he's changing and his chronic illness, whatever this is, we don't know what it is, is affecting his everyday life, our relationship. And so it's a really reasonable question to say, like, is this the person I'm supposed to be with, especially when I don't think he's taking his health as seriously as I am, even though it sounds like in his mind he was, It wasn't getting the result. There was this urgency too that I felt
2: a really strong urgency when you're watching someone lose weight quickly yeah I don't know I panicked I was just in this panic mode and I felt super urgent about it and I felt him like well just wait I have an appointment in like three weeks and I was like no, no, no that's that's three weeks of losing weight that's three weeks of crazy amounts of pain that's three weeks of of us fighting about this this is, this is that's not acceptable and you'd be like just wait and I couldn't yeah, so your <laughs>
1: intuition was a freaking fire alarm going off. Yeah. And it seemed like no one was taking you seriously. He wasn't. And then also the doctors weren't, correct? Correct. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I could at the same time wish and do not wish that I would ever see any of the doctors again. I actually asked Our surgeon, finally, when we had a diagnosis and it was terminal, I actually asked the surgeon to get in touch with other doctors and let them know that we're not interested in a lawsuit or anything like that. But it was so serious that his diagnosis is terminal. You sending him home and telling him that it might be irritable bowel syndrome or stress feels a lot like fucking malpractice to these people.
1: And you said to me you've learned a lot about patient advocacy since this experience.
2: One of the things that I would want to tell these doctors and one of the things that I feel like doctors should take seriously is listen to the girlfriend. Listen to the partner. The partner knows more about how that person is eating and sleeping than the actual person does in a lot of cases because if that person is in constant pain, there's no reference. They're not saying, oh, you know, it got better, it got worse. They're just, they're lost. The person standing next to them and living with them can describe it really well. And I felt like, In a lot of those doctor's offices, I was just getting brushed off. They're like, okay, yeah, but, you know, you're not. You were
1: like the dramatic wife.
2: Yeah. And then Casey would present himself of like, oh, it's not that bad. You know, I'm trying some things. I
1: think it's helping. And I'm like, no, 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 (laughs) no. This is what I see every day. Listen to me. Yeah. Listen to the girlfriend. Mandatory. That's awesome. I love that idea. Yes. Listen (laughs) to the girlfriend, everyone. She's telling the truth. Hello
2: he's a philosopher and a skeptic and so he studied philosophy in college and I told him as you know as he was dying over the course of the, that 14 months between his diagnosis and his death it was like you're you're getting your PhD in philosophy <laughs> I you're love like, that you're right up there with the with the great you know you're a you're a real philosopher now what would he say
1: when you would say that would he laugh did he love it yeah
2: yeah, he'd love it. He's like, it, it, it was true. It was true. He'd never been so able to apply his skills as a philosopher because he really was. All of a sudden, he had this forum of like people gathering around him and listening to him. And he's always been really, really great with people, and people appreciate his wisdom and his candor. His, he sounds
1: insightful.
2: Oh, he's so insightful, and he isn't afraid at all to offend anybody in a courageous way. Yeah, he was, he was so awesome. I mean, so, so loved by so many people. His community was incredible, is incredible. I, they're still my community.
1: I bet you felt a little nuts.
2: Oh, I felt insane. I was totally, I was losing my mind. It was really affecting my health. I was, my nerves were shot. Was, so you came
1: to see me because you were saying like, whoa, my partner isn't taking his health seriously or it feels that way. And it's affecting my health now just because I'm so stressed Mm -hmm. out about it. And, you know, is it time for us to split up? Because, of course, there's no answer to what's really going on with him. And then when did you get the answer?
0: So it
2: was uh, January 7th, I want (laughs) to say. It was a Monday. He went in for a colonoscopy. When they found the tumor in his colon, it was... Totally obstructing his colon, so he wasn't able to pass even fluid um, wow. at that. Point. So it was it was total. He was in emergency room kind of shape, but he went in to get a colonoscopy. They were like, and why were- did
1: he go in to get the colonoscopy? Because how old was he? He was too young for that.
2: Yeah, he was thirty three when they found the tumor.
1: Yeah, they finally sent him in for a colonoscopy. And at that point,
2: the tumor, I mean, at that point, it was stage four. He he had tumors all over his liver. Um, They were on his lymph nodes. It was stage four plus Wow. at that point. But it took us a week between seeing the tumor, and that week was crazy. Um, So I want to say the colonoscopy was on a Monday. The next morning, I actually had invited news crews, out to see a project that was being
1: built Because you're an was, architect, is that right? I'm an architect,
2: yeah. And we it was the first cross-laminated timber building um, ever built in Oregon, and that's a big deal for the temperature and for all that Yeah, thank you. So it was a building that I designed and I was really excited about this and I'd invited a bunch of people to come see this installation, including news crews. And less than twenty four hours ago I found out that Casey has this enormous tumor and so that was very surreal doing that but then later that day we went and met with the surgeon for the first time and he described to us what cancer is at that point we didn't have a biopsy of the tumor so you know there's still this like possibility that it's not cancer but um nobody's nobody's telling us that that's really in within the realm of possibility it's like eh, it's probably cancer so we're learning about what all the stages are. They're so like, okay, we can still sort of hang our hat on. Well, maybe it's stage two or stage three or whatever. And then since he's totally blocked, this is a really big problem. He could die. They scheduled a surgery for Friday. The doctor, like, added his surgery to, to his schedule. So it was like a Friday afternoon. He went in and got his surgical robe on. At that point, his mom and his sister are in town. They've come over the course of that week to be there. The doctor calls us back in. Casey's like on the bed waiting to get wheeled into the surgery room. And that's when the surgeon tells all of us that it's stage four. And stage four means that he will die of this. It is a terminal diagnosis. He has a 5% chance of living five years. I've thought a lot about what those numbers mean like why they say those numbers in particular like why five years what is that what you know why not one year what what does it mean and I actually kind of appreciate how open those numbers are in -hmm. some ways because it automatically makes you feel like okay five years five years we've got five years five percent chance I know it's really slim chance but you know there's a chance okay five years
1: Mm
2: -hmm. and there's some hope in that yeah um Even as they're saying, he will die, which is impossible to understand in real time.
1: Yeah, can you, you, yeah, talk about that. It's impossible to understand in real time. Keep going with that. You hear those words?
2: You hear those words. For me, what happened is um, something that had never really happened to me before that I can recall in my life, and that's that I went into shock. But it took some time. You know, it's like this chilling feeling of, like, unrealness. And uh, it, so, so meanwhile, actually, so the next thing that happened is that Casey was whisked off into the surgery. that is going to take anywhere between, you know, three and six hours or whatever. Nobody knows how long it's going to take because they don't know what they're going to find in there. They just know mm-hmm. that there's a lot of cancer and it's kind of everywhere. And they're going to try to get out as much as they can. She's like, what? What? Like all of a sudden we went from like a week ago, it's like New Year's and we had a fun party and now Casey's dying and he's getting as much cancer scraped out of his body as possible wow. by someone that we just met. He was in the hospital for five days a week after, after that surgery. Um, <laughs> so, um, and then I've... You know, personally, I've kind of gone into shock, and um, which to me feels like my whole body goes very, very cold, and um, I kind of shake. Uh, it, I I I talk, but I can't really finish sentences, and I kind of jump around, and um, mm-hmm. it's it's like torrential fear.
1: You're doing a great job describing, it, and a lot of people can relate to that. You're blowing people's minds. People are thinking about those exact symptoms and being like, oh my God, I can see a point in my life when I went into shock. It's really and it took,
2: it took a couple of weeks for me to physically recover from that or even to pull out of the shock. It affects your memory a lot. It just means you can't remember things. You can't learn new things. At the same time, I'm still trying to like go to work and Function and you do. You can kind of autopilot. There's no like continuity of thought, and it's just so, so unreal. and You can't recall, oh, did I set that up, you know, in work, say, like, did I set that meeting up? Oh, okay, I did. I have no memory of doing it, but okay, it's there. I must have, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and I did it an hour ago. Your brain just totally changes to survival mode. All of a sudden, I'm remembering the names of drugs that have 14 syllables name. That I can remember. No, I can remember the schedule of the medicine that he's supposed to. That's all I need to know. There's nothing that's important except for that anymore. Wow. After the surgery, the surgeon comes out and he says, you know, Casey's not really awake, but, you know, he's he's fine. You know, he's in there if you want to go see him. And so then I went in and kind of poked my head around the curtain and I said, hey, babe. He just smiled. I reached over, and I hold his hand, and he looks over, and he's like, oh, babe, it's so good to see you. The nurse on the way out was like, I wish you could have seen the chart when you touched his hand. When you touched his hand, all of his vital signs, his heart just went up. All of his, You, you could tell his whole body just like lit up when you touched him. And he wasn't moving at all, and so you came into the room, and he was totally out so this beautiful moment of like our connection
1: how did that make you feel knowing that he was just like gaga for you it's so
2: beautiful but extremely tragic because here's this beautiful love that we have and we share and it's, he's going to die so it intensifies everything to the max you know it's just like oh great that's also the saddest thing i've ever heard
1: yep. it's just as bitter as it is sweet yeah how did you meet but- him
2: We met at a house that I was renting
1: with a bunch of other people.
2: So my roommates had invited over their house to come to dinner, and I was not in the mood at all. I had just put in an offer on my house that I'm living in now, um, and it was accepted. So I was, like, freaking out. I had never promised anybody so much money in my life. It was, like, this crazy moment. And, And I was kind of not in the mood to socialize. But I heard the door, the front door open and close, and I knew they were there. And I was like, all right, she probably put on like not sweatpants. So I like put on regular pants and came out and I like round the corner and I practically bump into KC. We look at each other and we stand back and we just have this huge grin on our face. I was just immediately saw him and was like, that's my guy. And he yeah. kind, of, kind of had the same look on his face like, well, this is going to be a better night than I expected. <laughs> So we're both looking at each other without even saying anything, just like, we are going to hang out all night, and that is awesome. <laughs> I love that. It was, yeah, it was really like a love at first sight feeling. He's just so beautiful. He has this, this great, big, gorgeous smile, and these big teeth, and he's just so handsome, and big, big friendly eyes, and he's just gorgeous. And, yeah, so so fast forward, you know, five years um, when we're in the hospital together. <laughs> I go back in the morning to see him. I go in, he's still in the same room, and he's, he's at this point kind of able to sit up. He's like, hey, babe, okay, so I knew if, if I got through this, if I lived through this surgery, and at this point I didn't even know he was concerned about living through the surgery. It hadn't crossed my mind that he would not live through the surgery. <laughs> I'm like, whoa. So it definitely had crossed his mind. He's like, I told myself that if I if I made it through the surgery that I made a really important decision, will you marry me? And I was like, okay, um, yes, but you have to uh, ask me again when you're not on so many drugs. And
0: <laughs> I'm... In,
2: I know at this point that I'm in shock. Like, I want to be able to give you like the best possible answer too, and I am so fucked up right now <laughs> about all of this. Like, I don't know which way is up, and yeah. I I have to be able to tell you honestly, yes, but yes, until then, until you actually ask me again, do you have yeah, and you have to do that. So it was like the next day after his surgery, and in the meantime, he's in the hospital, and I start going shopping for things because I'm. I'm into this idea, actually. And it's something that we can talk about. We can start So our future just got totally blown out of the water. Boom. Like, that's when you start grieving. So I started grieving that, that day when we got...
1: Well the said.
2: Pregnancy. The first thing that we did to sort of rebuild our future was to get married. You know, I went and I started looking for rings for us. I didn't buy anything until he was able to walk in and, and look at them with me. I showed him pictures and so, you know, we're in the hospital and we're talking about our future and we're talking about getting married and what that's going to look like. And we know it's going to be very simple because our
1: lives are complicated enough. Why did you want to marry him at that point?
2: I wanted a way to talk about our future. I knew that I was in shock. I knew I'm a pretty rational person, as emotional and intuitive as I am. I'm also like pretty pragmatic. I meant it when I told him that I needed him to ask me again when I felt like I could answer it, honestly. And at that point, it was just like, here's a way to get through this week, and yep. here's a way to talk to him about This is something to talk about.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then we can build together. Mm-hmm. Ah, yeah.
1: You're doing great. There's so many pieces of your story that have a universal appeal. We all know what it's like to be in shock. We know what it's like to mm-hmm. grieve. And you love him. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about loving him? Mm. There's a lot of opposites
2: for us. He sort of was delicious. He would walk slower than I did. He would always be telling me to slow down. You know, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, don't get ahead of yourself. Like, just think this through. And, you know, in some way, and sometimes i just get frustrated. I'd be like, oh, but I just want to go fast and move quickly and, and make a decision and move on and, like, keep going. And, you know, I'd be like, no, 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 just just wait, just wait. And and that was kind of the balance we had with each other.
1: So he grounded you and frustrated you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Cuddling up with him was just, like, my favorite place in the whole world. And, and kissing him, I could just never stop kissing him. And he was just like he smelled so good so sexy and so so wonderful sexy and yeah. safe yeah sexy safe powerful strong great big laugh really like really beautiful voice he was way more we gotta you know get out of the house we gotta go do stuff then
1: sounds like people um, were drawn to him too very drawn to him yeah
2: he was just magnetic. he has a loud voice and he's funny, and he listens well, and is very thoughtful about his responses, and really cares, thinks through things people said later, you know, a week later, he'd be thinking about that conversation, and maybe call them up and talk about it again.
1: He was a glassblower?
2: As they say in the pipe-making industry, they make vessels, (laughs) or functional pieces, (laughs) and he was really, really good with proportion and color, and he sort of lent that super-solid nature that he had to his work. And he worked in um, solid pieces a little more than a lot of other glassblowers would do. So there are certain pieces that he would make that most people would approach by putting two pieces of glass together. And he would use one and
1: shape it. So it was a really strong piece. So he was a craftsman. Um, And how did that work with you being an architect? Because it seems like you could talk shop because you're always talking about moldings and containers and dwellings and units. What was the word you said? Vessels. Vessels, Yeah, <laughs> It
2: was interesting because we would talk about aesthetics and we'd talk about form and beauty. Yeah, we, we could talk about that. I actually loved talking about architecture with him. Our favorite things to do were actually quite simple. We would leave the house and we'd call it going on a Portland adventure. And we'd just leave the house with no agenda and just walk all day and get back at the end of the day, you know, just be gone for like 12 hours and just who knows what we're going to end up doing. And on those walks, we, you know, look at buildings. And so Casey would sometimes say like, so what do you think about that building? And he'd let me just like rant about it for a while. Mm-hmm. we would talk about, you know, what was good or what was bad about it. And we would do the same thing with a glass too. Like, so what do you like about that?
1: You're both uh-huh. artists you're both kind of have engineer minds because you can look at things and pull them apart and pick them apart. And then you have the artisan craftsman, craftswoman energy. Mm-hmm. And then you also have two different cultures, the world that makes dwellings, that architecture culture, and then the world that makes vessels, <laughs> the,
2: here I am with like a super professional job. You know, I'm like, I go to work in my nice clothes and I go to an office and I have this whole super professional life and KC is like smoking weed in the garage making art. And we, we and love that. Oh, yeah, we love that. You love
1: hours. the contrast. You love the polarity. I think that polarity is okay. so hot. It's sexy. Yeah, it super cool. Super
2: great. He called me his architect babe or his nerd babe.
1: Polarity, you know. I'm like I've got hundred dollars bills in my wallet. You know? <laughs> Thanks to you, babe. <laughs> yeah, like, and you uh, made him legit. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and he did clean himself up and come to my dumping parties. And,
1: you know, it was, just, it was great.
2: People would ask him what to do, and they'd say, "I make functional glass pieces." You know. So. Is there
1: any part, any stories you want to share around? The ending, any moments that you feel comfortable sharing, you know, feels important to share.
2: Went in for a a chemo treatment. His oncologist talked us through what that was going to be and got him into the chemo lounge and then immediately pulled me into his office and said, we can't do this treatment. He's going to die. He probably has a couple of weeks left. I need you to make a decision about whether he's going to get this treatment or not. And I said, well, okay, he's not then. So he, like, jumped up and ran out of the room and went and said, like, don't do the treatment to the nurses and and then came back. And at this point, Casey doesn't even know. The nurses know he's just going to get fluids, and Mm -hmm. and that's fine. Mm -hmm. Casey is like, he doesn't know. He's just, like, in and out of infection. I mean, it's just been a really fucking tough year. And so the doctor comes back, and he talks to me about what hospice is and how to get that started. We did that immediately. I... I didn't go back to work after that. So I just called my office and said, "I've at that point, I'd, done, I'd been so organized that I could just leave. Mm-hmm. And so I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew it was going to happen at any moment, sort of. That's how I operated.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so Casey at this point is super relieved. He's like, great. I'm, I never have to do chemo again. And that means giving up isn't quite the right word, but like we're at that moment where it's about comfort, palliative care, mm-hmm. right? It's like it's not about curing, it's not about getting better. It's just about being comfortable. We bring him home. I'm his full time caregiver at this point. I took the doctor seriously. I thought maybe we had a couple of weeks left. And I didn't I didn't tell Casey that actually. I didn't tell him that, that the doctor said he maybe has a couple of weeks. I also needed him to make some really serious decisions about Got power of attorney immediately. There are just a a number of things that we just put in motion that was like, okay, like, you don't have time to not do these things.
1: There's a business part of dying and death that is sort of shocking. Yeah. Yeah. And you're talking about the business part of it. It's like, whoa, okay, we need a lawyer (laughs) right now.
2: (laughs) So our hospice nurses turn out to be amazing. They're so good at this point, honestly, he still looks gorgeous. He's still, like, got these beautiful big lips that I just can't stop kissing ever. And, I mean, he's just so beautiful. And the hospice nurses, they all fall in love with him immediately. I mean, you're absolutely right. They're just like, oh, Casey, like, they would come by more often than they were allowed to. Like, they're only bet. allowed to do a certain amount of, of drop-ins. And they just come by and say, oh, that was in the neighborhood. Just wanted to see if you guys need anything. <laughs> we had this great team. And we got into this routine of About every couple of weeks, it would be, we would be in end game mode. You know, he's got a complete obstruction. He can't eat anymore. He's not going to be able to comfortably take in fluids anymore. He probably has a few days left. And then he would bounce back. And we would be like, what? Are you kidding me? (laughs) You bounce back from that? Like, what are you doing? And that happened every two weeks for like two and a half months. (laughs) And he just kept on living. I mean, he just, he got every last little drop of life out of that body that he possibly could. He made it, you know, he's ready. He's going to die now. Um, and that's, that's good. Liliana, I actually, this is, this is crazy, but, and it, it kind of goes back to remember how the day after they found his tumor, I had, I was like literally in front of a bunch of news crews and this yes. building installation that was going up behind me. Yep. Well, On the 24th of March, I'm prepared to give this presentation in front of like hundreds of people at the International Mass Timber Conference that's happening in Portland. I mean, I am ready. I have this presentation prepared. I've been at home. I've been caregiving, but while he's sleeping and while I have some extra time, I've been preparing this presentation So I had this whole presentation set up, about a 25-minute presentation. It's in three days. I'm ready to do this. All I have to do is like go. I feel like this is one of the most selfish things I've ever done, but it's also part of our love story, so it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. And I said, hey, hey Casey, um, guess what I'm gonna do in in three days? You know what? You know what I'm doing in three days? He's like, what? i was like, my presentation, and he's so proud of me. He's been so proud of me this whole time because. You know, I'm getting recognition on some pretty high levels in, in the industry and it's really exciting and it's all happening in this time of like tragedy and craziness, but he's so supportive and he's always been so proud of me. He's also really concerned about my well-being after he's gone. Of course. You know, am I going to be okay?
1: He loves and,
2: you. And he, yeah, he loves me. I mean, he, like I said, he, he wanted to be sure that I remembered everything that I learned from him. And so I told him all of those things about how how much he taught me. He wanted to make sure that I knew that I was that he wanted me to fall in love again. And mm-hmm. so I, I kind of had to prove to him in some ways. I mean, this is one of the reasons he took so freaking long to die is because he needed to be sure about a lot of things. <laughs> so I kind of had to talk to him. I called him love of my life. That's one of the like names that I would call him. I would call him love of my life. And, and towards the end, he'd say, you know. I'm not the only love of your life. And he was so concerned about that. So I spent some time talking to him about how our love is always going to be there. And and it was really amazing to have this opportunity to talk through with him, like how we both viewed our love being forever. But how that also was a freeing thing, that it didn't tie us together and bind us together. And it wasn't like that. You know, it's more just like, this beautiful entity that will never not exist. And now we have this this open rest of our, you know, eternity to find out what what else we have, you know, it's the future. You know.
1: That's beautiful um, because I hear you saying that his love for you wasn't possessive, that he wanted you to be happy. He wanted the best for you. He appreciated yeah. you. He cherished you. He wanted you to know your worth and that pleasure and joy an expansion and evolution of you on this earth on this plane was something he cherished and wanted like that, the fullness of you because when you tell the story of well we would go on these 12 hour adventures during the day where we just like you know pack a lunch and you know get out on the street we didn't know where we were going I imagine that you felt very protected by him Mm -hmm. and that allowed you to do that. Like when you're doing something like that, totally on your own, you know, you're thinking a little bit more protective of yourself, just, totally. you know, and when you're going with your partner in that way, and you have this kind of polarity going where he does something mm-hmm. you don't do, you do something different than he does. There's this incredible click that you have going on where he helps you feel expansive, you know, you can get yeah. more shit done, you can play more, you can explore more, there's more freedom in that. So it's almost like you're saying we were so strong together that we were free and untethered Mm -hmm. and he wanted you to shine. He was so proud of you. He was giving you that lesson in life. And then he was like, did you get it? (laughs) Do you you have it? Did you write it down? (laughs) You're like, babe, I got it. (laughs) Yeah.
2: I'm working on this presentation. I'm able to talk to him about it. And it was another way of of showing him that I was going to be okay. I won't Mm -hmm. fall apart. Look at what I'm doing right now. I have a, my hands in doing what I love professionally. It's okay. Like, I'm going to be okay. There's a way of showing him that I was going to be okay, that he, we both needed, honestly. Yeah. You know, he has one foot at this point in a whole other world. He spends most of his time in another world, and he comes and he joins us for less and less time every day. With a little bit of his time, he said, you know what I'm doing? I'm, I'm going to do that presentation. And he just goes, I can't die. I said. And if he was alive, I don't know. It was like this, I, ne- I really didn't think that he was going to make it that long. I really didn't. And I always gave myself an outlet. I do not have to do this. I'm going to prepare for it. I'm going to be ready for it. At any moment, I can just not show up, and that is fine. But here I am at this point, like, oh, my God, I, I might actually do this. And he just, he did. He just, he, he stayed alive for it. <laughs> I went there. I did it. It went so incredibly well. I mean, I hadn't had a lot of experience speaking in front of that many people. Really did it strongly. I got back. Both of the moms and a hospice nurse were in his room with him at that point, and And I came back, and they were all looking at me like, wow, you're back. You did it. And, and Casey opens his eyes, and he looks at me, and he's like, ah, oh. I was there with you the whole time. What? Standing right behind you. And I felt like, oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't actually feel that. But then I realized that I was so focused on what I was doing that I, didn't, I wasn't thinking about anything else. I was just thinking about what I was doing. And that was an amazing gift. Magic. To, be, to walk away from my husband's deathbed go give a presentation to hundreds of people in this incredibly professional environment and talk about my research and then go home and go back to his deathbed and I'll actually have the focus to do that. Like, I believe that he was there with me, helping
1: me do that. It <laughs> is so beautiful. I love that. I see this as your voice and Casey's voice. Oh, yeah. How much he loved you and how much you mm-hmm. loved him. Like, the love yeah. is, like... Ugh, in my heart when I hear you talk about him.
2: It's good and I mean it really felt like our lives got distilled to that being the most important thing and we we were the most important thing to each other and it was easy to say that. I always would tell him, even in like the weirdest moments of pain or in the hospital or in the chemo lounge, places that are not fun to be in but I would look at him and in, in all honesty and with full love just say hey babe I'm having a great time and it was really true it was always true every time I said it and every time I thought of it I would just say hey I'm having a great time and he would you know from his pain or whatever he'd smile and he'd say I'm having a great time too yeah it was so powerful for us because it was like it was an acknowledgement of he's alive yep, and we're together there's really nothing better
0: than that stay tuned to hear some final sweet words from KC to Emily this has been a Lotus Lantern production all rights reserved if this episode has meaning share it Let the story of Casey live on within you and others. Also, share your stories of love, loss, and life with those who will listen. We need to keep a dialogue going about love, loss, and grief.
1: given me a sample of his voice can you introduce the audio oh yeah so
2: the voicemail that I sent you sort of a joke that we had going where he would call me 99th percentile in in something like in skills of whatever it was and I would say 99th what about 100th percentile and he is kind of a math Geek, he was really into poker and really into statistics, and um and so he just thought that was hilarious because there's no such thing as hundredth percentile; it's just mathematically not thing. Um, But it became a joke between us, and and so he he would say that I was one hundredth percentile, a one hundredth percentile babe. <laughs>
1: that is awesome. I love that so much. It's such a treat to get to hear his voice after your story, too.
2: Yeah, he is. I love his voice. he's so
1: sweet, mm-hmm. yeah, super mm-hmm. heartfelt, yeah, well, thank you so much for sharing your story. I have been touched by it, and I know everybody listening will be touched by it and
2: mm-hmm. thank you for thank you for asking about it. I think it's really important to talk about the beauty in death as well as the the tragedy and the sadness, so thank you,
1: yeah. Absolutely, I agree wholeheartedly. We have to. We have to talk about, you know, that death is life, you know? Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
2: And sadness is love. They're the same thing. Totally, totally. Yeah. You are the babe of my life. That's why I'll always be around. You're outside, dropping on my message to you right now. I can hear you laughing out there, and I still love you. This message is by your request, and it is an expression of my love. That will be eternal, which means forever. It's
0: 100th percentile of
2: babe day of my life.